Love it when you talk science. <laughs> Welcome to the Aesthetics Mastery Show. If you've been listening to us on the Aesthetics Mastery podcast, some of this is going to be quite familiar, but some of it is going to be a whole lot newer and more exciting. Uh, we've got a lot of good ideas, which we're going to work through and try out on you guys. Uh, so let us know what you think in the comments. Um, but welcome to the first, the inaugural Aesthetics Mastery Show. I'm Dr. Tim Pierce. Hi, I'm Miranda Pierce. And today we've got a couple of interesting things to talk over with you. Um, we're going to do a... What are the topics we're doing? So we're doing a deep dive on the length of time that you guys have between an occlusion, if you were to cause one, and the actual necrosis. So the amount of time that you've got before Yeah, the so this content. is the critical time to take action and stop your patient getting a scar. It's pretty misunderstood. I'm going to go into depth on that so that you're empowered to, to do what you need to do when the time comes. And then we're going to tackle a tricky topic around the death of Caroline Flack, who is, for those of you who aren't in the UK, she's a TV presenter who took her own life last week. And we want to talk about how this, the learning that we can get from this experience is going to help protect you online, because we know that many of you are, well, all of you are business owners who need to get out there and market yourself. And actually, a lot of you aren't doing it because you worry about the kind of hate that she received online. And then there's one other topic, isn't there? No. No. <laughs> Welcome Not to the first inaugural show where we're going to make little mistakes like that. Um, but, okay, so what are we talking about first? We're going into the vascular occlusion. How long have I got? So this is, this is such an important topic because this is the time you've got to react to the problem. Now, I often see aesthetics practitioners refer to a vascular occlusion as a medical emergency. And that often makes you think you've every second counts. And absolutely, time does matter. But it's important to know exactly how much time. And really what we want to know that for is so that you've got you've got the ability to control your actions and put things together in a much more organized and sequenced way without letting panic take over the situation and starting to make bad decisions. Because um, that happens, unfortunately, all the time. People overreact, people underreact, people hide from the problem, people think everything's a vascular occlusion. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how long it takes from the moment a blood vessel is blocked until the moment you've no longer got any chance of reviving that tissue. So, so take me down, take me through, because you actually have had an occlusion yourself, haven't you? Take me through the moment it happens and then the process afterwards. Well, the, the key thing is that the first thing is the moment of diagnosis is quite tricky. So a, lo a lot of, you'd think it's quite simple, you know, is there blood supply or not? But unfortunately, mostly these situations are a little bit more complex because you, you can't tell for sure whether there's an occlusion. As soon as you block a blood vessel, the skin doesn't go immediately white. Um, there's often a period where it's in between. So you've got a bit of blood flow from before the injection started um, and then you're, um, it's, it's gradually getting worse over time. Um, the first thing I noticed was as I was injecting, I, I got a little flash. Um, I saw the, the other parts of the lip just go flash white for a second um, and then it returned to normal and my initial thought was, oh, it's nothing. It's a little spasm, but it's not an occlusion. Um, then I went back and checked it. And it's from that moment where you're basically doing your capillary refill test. So we're continuously checking the blood flow, which has got a specific technique to it. And then you've, once you've made the decision, this is definitely a vascular occlusion, then the, t the, clock start, the clock starts ticking. How long have you got until that tissue dies? And that's the 
what we're really talking about there is the pathological process of necrosis because there are points along the journey of necrosis where it's easily reversible and there are points where it's gone too far and it doesn't matter what you do, the tissue is dead. So that is your window of opportunity. There are many things apart from how long you've got that can, li- that can decrease the time between injection and diagnosis and that is a crucial time. There's a how long between diagnosis and reversal have you got but there's another number which is how long between injection and diagnosis. That number we also need to work on shrinking because if you and the little simple things you can do, like I've been recommending for years, that if if you're uh, if you're injecting someone in, in, a, in an area where there's a blood vessel that might get blocked, why not just check capillary refill after every procedure so that you've literally got in your mind as I I checked it, it was fine. And I've actually seen a few clinicians who video it, and it becomes extraordinarily useful when they think they've got a problem later on because you've got the original capillary refill before the hematoma arrived, and it makes it a lot simpler to see what. Um, whether or not the blood flow has changed since that moment. When you say procedure, what do you mean every injection? Well, you don't you don't have to check after every injection, although that would be fine too. It's more that when you when you finish the procedure and you you're about to take your gloves off, check the blood supply of the face. Okay. Otherwise, you're constantly doing it. So finish the procedure and check, unless there's some reason why you think you should check sooner, like you, it was an odd injection or it bled or something like that. And then presumably another factor in that's going to affect the amount of time you've got ultimately is the information that you give to the patient to go away with so safety netting them yeah so you can minimize the once again you're minimizing the time between occlusion and diagnosis by giving the patient good information so say you just couldn't see on that patient you forgot you know you um it wasn't that clear um, and they did have an occlusion if they've got adequate information in front of them which is not just what an occlusion is but who to call and, and what to say and what the signs are you're going to and then you've got a plan in place of how you're going to see them quite soon um, just a, and that can be as simple as saying if I ever get someone who I think has this problem they are priority number one and I will see them in my clinic no matter what else is going on uh, that's a, a decision that you or make something. or home visit yeah. but you're, you're, you're just that's just another mechanism of minimizing the gap between when the occlusion occurred and when you diagnose it and then you've got when you diagnose to when you reverse and, and how long you've got. What if they then come back to you? Let's say they came back to you within three hours and now they're reporting signs of an occlusion. Is it too late? Well, um, first thing is I think you can rely on the capillary refill test as a screening tool. I think it's fairly unlikely that if you check properly that someone's going to have a big vascular occlusion and you won't notice it. I, I just tell patients the signs and symptoms in case something strange happens or maybe I forget to do it well or maybe there's some factor but I bet that, that I'm not aware of that can decrease the sensitivity. But I don't want to diminish that that's an important thing that should reassure you. If you've done a good test, um, you shouldn't immediately think, oh, it's, it's just a vascular occlusion. It quite likely is something else if you've done that test. But do check them if in doubt. So the, 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 the time you've got between the shutting off blood supply and tissue death, that's the, that's the critical amount of time. Um, and really what... That, it's really helpful to understand the pathology that's going on, the pathogenesis, that's the process of disease, disease production almost. Um, if you understand that, it'll help you interpret what you're seeing at different points along the journey. Um, and it also helps you make decisions about how aggressive you should be in terms of treatment. Um, if you think about what necrosis is, it's basically caused by a reduction in blood flow to the to the skin which means oxygen that's the first and most important nutrient that your body needs all tissues need oxygen but they need it at different amounts depending on how metabolically active they are so if you're um, talking about skin it has a different metabolic rate rate to nerves um, you know to your uh, neurons in your brain 
uh, to the retinal artery, retinal um, cells. So all of them are slightly different. We're mainly talking about skin, but there are some some tissues which we know a bit more about, which can give you an idea about how that the metabolic activity affects how long you've got to reverse. So um, the reason there are different amounts of time is because each cell is using energy at a different rate. And what happens with necrosis is that you're running out of you're running out of the energy substrate ATP, and then there's a knock-on effect as the, everything starts to fall apart. So you can think about a cell a little bit like a boat that has a permanent hole in it, and it's leaking water, and there's a machine that's using energy that pumps the water back out. And that's the only that boat can carry on floating around endlessly and happily as long as that machine is pumping water out. It's not going to sink. And that's how you should think about the cells in the face. As soon as you shut off the energy supply, what happens to that boat? Well, the water starts to spew in and it's not coming out. That's exactly what happens actually with with a cell when the ATP ATP supply drops and the sodium-potassium pump is no longer able to pump sodium um, out of the cell and potassium in. And it starts to go in the opposite direction, which actually means water starts to flow into the cell. So the first stage of necrosis is that the cell actually starts to swell up. Uh, and that's actually easily reversible. If you can get the energy back in, you're not going to have a, a complete necrosis. It's the first stage of it. But it gets a whole lot messier after that because... Um, going back to the boat analogy, you can imagine that um, as the water flows up, other things are going to start to go wrong. Like it might it might affect the electricity supply in the boat because the water comes up and it might then flood into the engine and then you're breaking those things. It's a little bit like that with cells. There, there are worsening components as you go up until it's completely irreversible and the boat sinks. So in terms of the cell, the the, the next thing that happens is you get a... you can, There is some anaerobic um, metabolism and that means that you're able to use... Uh, produce some energy without oxygen but it's really small compared with what you do with with oxygen it's about five percent of what the cell needs and that just gives you a little bit of breathing space there's a tiny excuse the pun um there's a tiny bit of time when you're able to the cell is able to keep some of the processes going but it's it's running out of time you can't run just on on anaerobic activity and so the um, what happens when you start to run out of those things is the other other organelles start to get damaged. So the, the smooth recto, rectoplasmic, re, smooth reticulum starts to fill up with fluid as well, and that starts to expand. Then you start to get an acid production from the anaerobic production in the cell, so that you're producing this acid while you're trying to produce uh, some energy from anaerobic supplies, and that starts to distort the enzymes, and many of them don't work so well, and that's further knocking the cell out of balance. Um, eventually, you lose control also of the calcium pumps and then calcium makes a huge difference it starts to activate other enzymes which are really destructive so you start to activate the cell's own proteases and nucleases and they they basically digest protein you're literally starting the process of the cell accidentally uh, destroying itself to go back to the boat analogy it's a little bit like maybe um the the electricity fails and then the engine coolant fan fails and the engine starts to heat up and then a fire breaks out it's that knock-on effect you've now got a fire breaking out effectively inside the cell which is um which is starting to destroy little components of the cell's mechanisms which it needs to maintain homeostasis to actually keep itself alive um Further on from that, you, you start to destroy the membranes of the lysosomes. So lysosomes are little organelles filled with digestive enzymes that your cell would use to basically break down nutrients. They're highly destructive and they're usually kept safe in these organelles. 
But as soon as you start to break down those organelles, you're basically spewing the most toxic stuff, just out of control spewing of digestive enzymes everywhere. And, and it, that just really starts to destroy everything until the in, everything, including the outer cell membrane, breaks down and all the cells' constituents just spew out into, into the surroundings, including those enzymes. And then you're damaging the cells nearby as well. So not only is that cell that ran out of oxygen being damaged, but that it's also being attacked by those same out-of-control enzymes. Um, the cells next to it start to be attacked. So you're basically setting off this, this, this chain of chaos where one thing leads to more chaos, which leads to more, where everything's being destroyed and, and it's a highly destructive process because all of the highly tuned processes which your cell has honed over billions of years to keep things in order all break in sequence until there's complete destruction. So that's the process of necrosis. I love it when you talk science. There is also, but there are times along that journey, probably just before the calcium comes into the equation and you start to activate all those destructive enzymes, just before that point, you might be able to save it. Now, how long that is, highly variable. It can't, can't give you a precise number, but we do know a little bit about different tissues and how long they can last, through, um, through, often through accidents and trauma. So if you lose a limb, there's a period of window a period of time, a window of opportunity where you might be able to reattach the limb without losing tissue. And if you take that as an example, it's probably between six and eight hours. I've seen a few people say six to 12 hours. It's not the kind of thing you can run a controlled trial on. There are very little examples, very little people who volunteer for that study. So it's based on real world experience. And they say, you know, within within that time frame, you can probably reattach a limb and you're not going to have just necrotic skin everywhere. So I think that's quite a good guide that you've got a fair amount of time, but that is different to necrosis that would happen from an injection because you've got blood in the limb. Who knows how long that can help for. Um, I wouldn't have thought it would play a massive role, but it's one thing that makes it not 100% applicable. But I, I'm thinking, because I'm thinking about, let's say that um, someone watching this has done a, a lip injection at 8 o'clock at night, for example, and then that person goes home and, you know, maybe they settle down in their pyjamas and they don't want to, they, they're in pain, but they think, oh, I'll just leave it to the morning and see how I feel. I feel like if, if people watching this are going to safety net them correctly, you're it would be better to say something along the lines of, if, if, if the worst were to happen, we're talking, you know, basically that you would want them to come in sooner rather than later. So how would you deal with that to actually not freak someone out, especially when you don't think they've got an, occlus um, an occlusion, but actually to press, impress upon them, they must contact you that night? Um, so they need to know. They need to understand what the consequences are if they don't contact you, and it is necrosis, which is a permanent scar. You have to say that out loud in your consultation; uh, otherwise, you're not consenting them properly. So, if if we do not restore blood flow, you will get a permanent scar wherever that blood flow was supplying. Um, then, within that context, it makes a little bit more sense why you shouldn't dilly, dilly dally. So but you've got you a say, limited amount of time, say out, and you give yeah. them give them that length of time, which is you know a maximum of. I, you know, eight to 12 hours if it's a complete occlusion. Now it does get more complex because you never know if it's slightly partial and maybe the cell's been ticking along with a little bit of anaerobic and a tiny bit of oxygen and maybe it's not going to necrose. Um, I don't know. But you, as I said, the minimum is the focus. I want to see anyone with a suspect um, occlusion within, basically within two hours yeah. is what I'm aiming for. Um, but I would, I would still really encourage them if it's gone to three hours not to give up you know, let's go, let's, let's push it as long as it takes. If you've got pain, if you've got signs of necrosis, they need to be seen. Um, but different tissue, the, the exact amount of time is hard, is hard to pin down. I can tell you a couple of other um, examples of where necrosis is a bit, a bit better known. And it does come from animal studies. 
some of them, and some of them come from human studies. Now, the shortest, the other situation in medicine where we quite often get necrosis is in uh, is in skin uh, during with bed sores. So if you're sitting on the same point for a long period of time, the reason you get bed sores is because you're not able to get blood flow to that tissue, and the shortest amount of time you can get bed sore is about two hours. Now it's usually a bit longer than that, but if two hour, I could I would say two hours is is the minimum amount of time I'd expect necrosis to really set in. And a lot of those will heal quite well and they're fairly small. So it's, you know, a complete necrosis or partial, it's hard to say. But two hours, if you look at the skin cells um, in the case of uh, pressure sores. There's also been studies done on animals, um, fairly awful studies if you're an animal lover. But it does help us uh, navigate this complex world, which is around blood supply to the eye, for example. So they have done experiments on monkeys where they cut off the blood supply to the eye and see at which point, if they, re- if they then restore the blood, the blood flow, does the animal have normal vision again? And that seems to be about 90 minutes. So if, it's, if you're talking about eyes, you've got a maximum of 90 minutes, um, and that includes your reversal times. It's not, not a lot of time, but it does say it's not seconds, it's not minutes even. You're kind of into an hour and a half um, where you've got some hope of being able to do something. Um, and what was the last one I was going to say? Well, I mean, other situations are heart attacks, strokes. That gives you some some idea of how the me- the metabolic rate of the cells affect how long you can survive with that oxygen. And for example, brains, you've only got a few minutes. If you have a stroke, you're unlikely to completely restore things um, if you haven't if you haven't got blood flow back fairly quickly. You know, an hour and a half without blood flow to your brain, it's over uh, for that area of, of brain. So all tissues are different two hours minimum. Uh, But I think the take home for me is two hours doesn't mean it's not the same as a cardiac arrest. You've got some time to think, to plan, to do whatever you think is going to make the situation safer and then to act with with being decisive, but not being rushed. There is time. It's quite a lot of time to do quite a lot of work, two hours. But I think it's about sending that patient away by saying, if this does happen, I would want to be seeing you within two hours. And that, that's not a scary thing to say. It's just, it's actually quite commanding. If I was on the other end of that, I'd be like, okay, fair enough. Yeah. And then I'd know what to look out for. Fab. Okay. Thank you so much. It's a tricky topic, but it's something that I think will certainly empower people watching to know how long they've got. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to our next topic, which we want to do. We want this feature to be responding to what's out there in the news almost and particularly in social media the kinds of things that you guys are talking about so we'll keep an eye out but if there's anything that you think is worthy of us tackling then please do let us know in the comments or hit me up on social media Miranda Pierce so terrible news last Saturday we found out that Caroline Flack who for those of you who don't know she was most famously a tv presenter on a show called Love Island, which is very cherished in England. And it's a reality TV show. And she was a a woman, 40, you know, the the way that she was received publicly was she was kind of seen as like a kind of fun, you know, party girl, bit of a rebel, but the girl next door as well. So very relatable and gorgeous and just, you know, someone you could have a drink with on a Friday night. And that was her persona. But then more recently, just before Christmas, I believe, she got embroiled in a tricky situation where her it was she's been accused of hitting her partner over the head with a lamp. And she denied it and she went to an initial court hearing where she pleaded not guilty. And then she was due in a few weeks' time, I think, to go back and face the court on that accusation. And I actually think she was still with her partner, so it was all a bit of a messy, tricky situation. Anyway. The main thing about the Caroline Flack story and the, the 
the lesson that we're all taking from it and we want to dive into that and discuss it what everyone is saying on social media about what happened to Caroline Flack because she took her own life is that she had received so much hate on social media about the apparent abuse of her partner. So everyone's saying, you know, she, she did something, she maybe did something terrible. We don't know whether she did it, but, you know, we as humans should give each other chances. We shouldn't go after each other. And as a result, people are drawing, I think, the conclusion that actually social media is a terrible place and that, you know, everyone's horrible and, you know, that essentially the, the baddies out there killed her and therefore our society, you know, is going to hell in a handcart. And that specifically what I'm interested to talk to you about, Tim, is guys watching this here are vast majority single-handed people working in business, estheticians working in business. And you guys, in my opinion, need to get out there in social media. But if you're scared that you're going to get hate because someone on a buy and sell group or something like that is going to say that the lips you posted are gross and women shouldn't have that in their lips anyway and you're a bad person and whatever, if that's going to stop you marketing, then that's a really bad thing. So if that's the lesson that's drawn from her death, I think that would be really, really unfortunate. And I, I, I would love us to kind of talk through how we can bolster ourselves as business people so we don't fear social media. Mm. It, it's a really interesting topic, and and I was looking at this all unfold and and realizing that the idea, Caroline Flack is is symbolic of a whole underlying deep battle that's going on uh, within our society around how we deal with social media and um, how polarized we all are. Like there's so much polarization in politics, um, and in and on generally in in society, people are very much very quick to jump in and condemn each other. Um, they, we feel somehow um, vindicated to go and set someone straight when we see them wrong on social media. And then that's what we all have to deal with, which is uh, each person has their own rules for survival in life, their own way of understanding the world. And if they see someone else who doesn't fit in with that, they'll often go and attack them. And, and unfortunately, it's happening even in response to what happened to Caroline Flack, which is we're now demonizing anyone who works for, you know, it's not so it's not so specific, but there's definitely an element of demonization around, you know, whether it be magazines or social media. Or it's the CPS. Or the, the CPS. The, the Crown so, Prosecution yeah. Service who are going after about this abuse claim. Yeah. And mostly it's an oversimplification simplification of what's very complex in terms of each each situation from Caroline's situation to how the media are. Like each one is a complex system that... If you can step back from it and not caricature it into something that you hate, um, I think that would be that would be helpful for everyone. But you're not going to achieve that on social media. Those people calling for kindness cannot, therefore, the next day expect to post something on social media and expect everyone to be kind, even when they disagree with it. Because the polarization means if you see something that you think is wrong, we call them out. That's that's call out culture that we're all doing. Like we're calling out the magazines, we're calling out Instagram, we're calling out Love Island. Love Island. So everyone's calling out each other. And one day you're going to be called out if you're putting your head above the parapet. If mm-hmm. you're saying, here are some lips that I do, or here's a treatment, you can have someone who disagrees with that for some reason that's fairly unique to them or there's an ideology behind it, they're going to call you out. And what we what we want to really help our audience with is how do you deal with that? It's kind of how you framed it. How, how do we think about that scenario so that you can actually go out there and put yourself out and deal with the, the comeback that you're going to get? Because we all get it. Someone will comment on your post something nasty um, and you're going to need to know how to deal with it. I don't think what we should be tolerating is the idea that the world has to change before I lift my head out above the parapet. You have to steal yourself and get out there and, and, and make, let your message out, basically. Have you had hate online? Yes, I have. Um, I had someone call me, what was it? 
It was, it was quite, a, quite an awful thing to have said to you, but I mean, I was okay about it, but it was something along the line. It was, I think it was actually, I hope you like drop dead your human scum or something. Human scum? Yeah, human scum. It was around non, no, not training non-medics. And I'd, I'd written a few posts around, and I, and I try really hard not to be personal. So it's like, I'm talking about the system. The system should be safer. And yes, that means not everyone and their dog can inject. That doesn't mean that the individuals who want to inject should be stopped. They just might have to take a different path. But that comes across to someone who has something to lose as a direct threat. And, and often if you, in, if, you, if you build an identity and with an idea, you get very defensive around it. So the response is, I must be human scum because I'm, I, pu- I purposely want to hurt this individual who I've never met before by taking away their ability to earn money for their family. That, that's how it's put across. I understand how they could feel that way. Um, which is maybe why I don't feel so bad about hearing it because I can understand that, that 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 could trigger someone. But at the same time, yeah, like I've had that and I've had loads of other stuff as well. I can't even remember most of it. So that it's interesting, that one, because that was a beauty therapist going after you. I don't know if it was a beauty therapist. It was a non-medic injector. There's okay. all sorts of other people as well as beauty therapists. Too. Yeah. What we worry about so much is colleagues on our level or maybe above us or whatever going after us and can I actually can I bring an example in at this stage because um Dr Esho who many people will know um so Dr Esho is probably one of the most famous injectors in the industry he's on this morning at the tv show and he's been super open about how much hate he's received both in terms of just generally and racism and stuff but also from colleagues in the industry and he shared on um the Mindset Warrior group this week and I have permission to share it here in fact I think it was on his page he said he's experienced I know for myself I haven't even had half of Caroline's fame but the moment I got on TV a lot of things changed threats to my family racism and even people wishing harm to my son based on nothing but jealousy and negativity this wasn't just from social media but also from people within my own industry and I couldn't even understand why as I was remained the same guy as I'd, I had been just a few more followers and my face in the media and he goes on to talk about how his mindset is pretty strong so he's okay you know he can deal with it but I wonder like what can someone who isn't in tv and you know hasn't had any necessarily as a big big you know amazing mindset whatever how can people watching not feel deep threat when they get called a human scum yeah i mean it's i don't know if there is a way of because because i've had you had you have fearful thoughts around it like i sometimes worry about you know someone you know, attacking us or seeing our kids on social media and doing something. So it does it does penetrate you, and you think, God, that's a bit scary um, when it's when it's so hateful. What's more common, I think, and more probably more something we should focus on because it's unlikely you're going to be getting death threats because your lips aren't are a bit big or for someone's tastes. Um, but it's the it's it's understanding why you feel that way, why it feels so awful. Because this is one of the dynamics I think children need, particularly around social media, need training with is that when you're dealing with hundreds or thousands of people there are going to be a percentage who will who will attack you no matter what you say i mean i always look at those you can go onto youtube for fun and and google dog rescues kitten from (laughs) from a pool and you think you know no one's going to dislike that well no there's like a a thousand people who've like down thumbed that (laughs) so there's always going to be a percentage of people who react badly and you might just be talking to someone who hasn't had breakfast that morning or you know they've just in the middle of a divorce and they're stressed out and they're just unleashing uh, some hate um 
but it doesn't feel that way to you. What it feels like is there's something very specific about you that's wrong and someone has come to alert you to the fact. And this is what I think goes on in people's minds is that you you don't interpret Twitter as a sea of grumpy people who haven't had breakfast who are just snapping out meaninglessly. You think someone has analyzed you, studied you, found your flaw and is pointing it out to you. And moreover, they, they somehow represent your greater community. And it's really hard emotionally to detach that because there's a face there, there's a name, and they're telling you something that's really negative. And it's, that doesn't happen in normal life. If, if, you, if you walked into the corner shop and they said to you, God, your lips are too big or your lipstick's wrong or your colors, like you'd be devastated because that just doesn't happen. Yeah. And you'd think, wow, that must be really bad for someone to say that to me. It must be true. But it's something about social media that decouples the face-to-face but also amplifies the most negative people. You're, you're probably dealing with the one in a hundred thousand grumpy person, but it feels like maybe everyone on social media yeah. hates me. So Ooh. there's something on, on decoupling that. And also, you know, if you, if you take... Um, it, people catastrophize these things. So even uh, Caroline's really sad cases, she prob- who knows what was going through her mind, but there might have been all sorts of very awful stories of I'll never get through this it'll never be over you know my whole career is ruined which probably if you were in a in a more calm state of mind you might you might think that's probably not true that there is a way to come over it. and people do survive all sorts of things and and recover from all sorts of tragedies so it may not be true but you basically you get triggered and you can spin off and you can live in that world of the worst case scenario versus yesterday's news which is unfortunately what most of these things become your hate on social media is is nothing in the scheme of things and if you can somehow just take it you often say take it as a sign of um that you're doing the right thing if you haven't offended someone by midday you're not marketing hard enough I'm yeah that's a dad, uh, quote by a chap called dad, dad robertson yeah it's yeah powerful so it's almost a signal that you're getting somewhere is that someone comes on and says put your head down love i don't like what you're doing because then you're like okay you've seen my head great yeah that's yeah. what i'm here for but i think something you said there caught my attention around that I think is helpful around Twitter so you mentioned Twitter now I I'm not on Twitter I don't think I'm gonna ever be on Twitter because to me Twitter is a place of grumpy people who haven't had breakfast that kind of vibe. now obviously I'm sure many people watching this here are on Twitter but the point is that culturally it's different the culture is that you go for people a bit more and I don't think that that's the people on Twitter I think it's that when you when those normal people come on Twitter they're a bit more like you know they they operate differently and we all have experienced times in our life where let's say a particular workplace the culture is bad and then normal human beings show up to that workplace and do bad things and are bitchy or whatever it might be so in other words I think that that's empowering because if we think to ourselves look social media might be grumpy and full of people who haven't had breakfast but actually I'm still me I'm still that same person who is worthy and who is just trying to develop my business and spread joy amongst my clients, whatever it might be that you're trying to do. And so I just see it as a place, a corner of the internet, a corner of your life that you, you do have to go into, in my opinion, or else you might not have a business if you're not on social media. But you you can approach it in that kind of like, right, I'm going in kind of thing and, and just see it as see it for what it is which is just culturally different to how you would be if you walked in with your bezies on a friday night having prosecco it's completely different culturally yeah um i would say you got to sign up to the flesh wounds um and that means 
it, th there is no zero risk way of putting yourself out there. In fact, it's absolutely impossible that you will put yourself out there with someone not without someone criticizing you. Zero chance. If you want to have 10,000 followers, you are going to be criticized yeah. for something. Um, and that's not even that many. If, you, if you're T-John, you've got millions of people know you, you're going to get, there's a shitload of people who are going to, um, who are going to say things. But it isn't necessarily a measure of you. It's a measure of the, of the number of people who are out there who haven't had breakfast. The process I went through was around really formulating my philosophy on why I do what I do. Mm -hmm. Because when you first start, it's unconscious, it's unchallenged. And often when someone says to you, what are you doing to people's faces? If, if it's the first time someone's asked, like you've never asked yourself that question, it's stressful because the, there's a fear at the bottom of it that it's going to be something bad about yourself. So you need to thrash out, why are you doing what you're doing? What, are, what is your intent for the people that you treat? How are you hoping it's going to affect them? How is your work um, making sure that you achieve those goals that are worth achieving for them? Maybe at the bottom of it is that you just want to make more money. That's why it's so stressful when someone says that to you. You need to change your philosophy. If you don't want that to be true about yourself, you have to, you have to develop your thinking and make sure you're actually doing something that when you get criticized for, because I'm at this stage now, I had a drunk guy at a bachelor's party say, uh, you just make money out of people's insecurities. And I didn't care at all because I'd thought about it so long. I know why I do what I do. I know the difference it makes. I don't care about some drunk guy at a party. He's clueless. He All he did to me was reveal that he doesn't know what I do. Yeah. And that's, but that, I wasn't like that at the beginning. At the beginning, it hurts and you question yourself. And we've had, you know, we've talked openly about family members who've written to us saying, you know, you're doing something wrong here. And when we first got that, it was stressful. Mm -hmm. It was really different to how it is now. Now it's like, okay, thanks. See you Bye. later. Yeah. <laughs> But Brene Brown talks about um, a gorgeous, she has a gorgeous concept, which is that if you are, she only takes criticism from people who are in the arena doing what she's doing. So the arena being like the gladiatorial arena, you know, like we are in the arena now, like this is, this is our first YouTube show. Like there's, there's some level of emotional risk here. And if someone thinks it's rubbish and they down thumb it, I'm not going to let that affect me unless they've got a YouTube show talking about, you know, risky topics and aesthetics and all of that. And so she says, if don't let the people in the cheap seats, you know, have an opinion about you in the in the arena. And the other thing that I want to say is that let's talk about the client, your clients. Like if you get hate online, you need to, let's say that you put a post up on a buy and sell group or something of some before and after lips. If, you know, John from Southampton comes on and says, those lips are ugly. That's a human being. You need to defend that person graciously, of course. But you, we're talking about the practitioners. Then the haters are just talking about aesthetics. What about the patients? What about these people you know, who need what we've got to give them? Those people need defending. Those are the people who are, I think, on the front row seats. I want, you know, I care what they think. Um, but I'm not going to, the people, you know, John from Southampton is very much in the cheap seats. I don't care what he thinks. And, and we need to, people need to get to that point so that they are, they are emboldened. And then when the hate does come, cause it will, you'll be ready. It's funny. I, I, was, I was thinking, as you said that there, there are a lot of, particularly there's this idea of feminine empowerment. There are a lot of people who are defending the idea of feminine empowerment by telling other women what to do. There's definitely an element of, um, you shouldn't be doing that because it's bad. But but it's it's almost the complete reverse. Like the, shouldn't be doing lips, getting your lips no, done. No, people shouldn't be getting their lips done because feminine empowerment, oh, which right. is obviously the other way around. Like it, you could see it as a symbol of feminine empowerment. Um, but so often people are saying that this is inherently bad for women. 
um, when actual fact it's women who are actually driving driving it and want it. But they create the story of it's not being driven by women, it's being driven by people who tell women that they need it. Mm-hmm. Which if you talk to most women, all of them say the same thing. I'm not doing this for anyone else, I'm doing it for me. Yeah. You hear that all the time. Whereas the people who come out and attack will, will often say these people are being tricked or duped into it. And it's a really kind of paternalistic yeah. attitude of like, I know how people tick, they don't know themselves. Um, which is something also worth worth defending. That if you're... <laughs> so annoying yeah if you're if you're um, serving people's real needs and it's actually sustainably makes them happier then then it's a good thing to do but if you're you know this idea that it's all a trick is also one of the ideas you come across in uh, on social media quite a lot from people who think they know how other people should run their lives yeah so the takeaway is sort your own intentions out ask yourself just literally just yourself ask yourself what are you doing this for who are you doing this for what transformation do you hope to seek in your customers and your potential customers and then from that place of strength and of knowing you're doing the right thing when a hater comes in and slings a rotten apple from the cheap seats you could be like bye one more thing to make that easier for you is start to ask your patients what is the real difference they're hoping for because they'll often come and ask for a treatment in the beginning many clinicians will do the treatment and off they go and they never find out what difference that makes so uh, I've been doing this for years now and you get back amazing stories like what is how how are you hoping to feel differently on different days if this treatment goes as I think it will and you look better uh, and then how are you hoping to behave differently and often you'll get stories out of that that are really profound you know I want to be um, you know uh, I, I want to get a relationship again for the first time since my husband died and I haven't had the confidence to go on social media or to go on these dating sites I've had many many people who have click themselves back into that uh, into the dating scene and often they don't come back necessarily there's one in particular I'll always remember who who met someone quite quickly and, and I haven't seen her since so she obviously she needed that little catalyst she sorted herself out had the confidence to go out there solved her big life problem and never came back like I that was really worth doing maybe I never got to treat her ever again but the point is I changed her life in the way that um that she was looking for so find out what your client really wants and then notice the improvement and then when someone comes and says what you do is superficial and shallow you'll just laugh at them because you've seen that it actually changes people's lives uh, when you do it in the right way so so it's not just about knowing your intent it's actually observing the impact that will defend you and make you much more resilient to people who criticize you and also what's beautiful about that tip, I absolutely love that, is that then you'll know how to speak to your prospective clients on your marketing as well. So if you know that those are the kinds of things that can be achieved, you know you can you connected with your clients more basically, aren't you? And your prospective clients and you can talk that language in your social media that you must do. So I think the takeaway is please continue to risk being seen because the world needs you. And the tragic death of Caroline... I think is indicative of someone who it was it was just too much for her and actually I'm in the game of trying to bolster myself so much that when that horrible horrible moment comes and someone calls me a human scum or whatever although you seem to brush it off very well when that comes I'll be I will be filled up and I'll be ready to take it one more thing relates to Caroline's death which is people are rightfully calling for more kindness but um but then sometimes also spotting more perpetrators and you can do that on your own feed when someone comes up and criticizes what you're doing try and be kind to them while being kind to the people who are listening and you can still draw boundaries but you will feel way more empowered to deal with someone who's criticizing you if you can actually get into the mind of feeling kind to them Um, particularly women I always think 
I have, I have a few clients who've admitted they used to be dead against it and then have realized that they were unhappy with their looks, changed something, and then been really big advocates of it. You could be talking to someone like that who's actually in a bit of mental conflict themselves about what they want and they're resisting something. Be really kind to them. Understand their position. Listen to them. And then say, state what your position is. You don't have to get defensive back at them. And that's the kindness idea in practice, which is if you're kind to the people you dislike, you, close, you end the cycle. If you start to make them perpetrators themselves, you're going to propagate more of this issue, which everyone wants to see end. But I don't think we know how to end it because we haven't learned how to be kind to the people we dislike. Well. That's a profound note on which to end it. So guys, we hope you enjoyed our first Aesthetics Mastery show. Please give us any feedback in the comments. Nice or otherwise, we can deal with it. And then we can improve as we go along. Test us with some abuse and we'll see how <laughs> we'll be kind back. <laughs> Fab. I hope that's been of some service and we'll look forward to seeing you next week because we're going to be doing these weekly shows. Please subscribe to Tim's channel and drop us a like if you do like it so we get some good feedback as well. Take Thank care, you for guys. watching. Bye-bye.